Well, today we are finishing up lesson five, and the title of the lesson was Idols and Idolo Trinkets. Now, we've been talking about Hosea and Gomer throughout these weeks, and what we've been seeing is that the relationship between Hosea and Gomer is really an allegory. It's an allegory for God's relationship with Israel. Hosea has shown great grace and forgiveness and love to Gomer as he has reached out to her, even redeeming her back from slavery. But on the other hand, Gomer, with her adultery and her lovers, has shown the unfaithfulness in her heart. And that is a picture of Israel and a picture of, of all of God's followers at times. The word idolatry, is or the subject of idolatry, is actually mentioned 1,000 times in Scripture. Does that surprise you? 1,000 times? There probably are only a handful of subjects that are mentioned 1,000 times. God, I'm sure the Father, Jesus Christ, and so on. But there aren't many that are utilized that many times. So what this says to me is, this is a huge issue. God was very, very concerned about this. And this should raise some caution flags for us, too, as we think about it. In fact, in Jewish law, it's one of only four sins that required the death penalty. Only four things required the death penalty, and idolatry was one of them. Well, God made it very clear from the very beginning, as he gave Moses the Ten Commandments, how he felt about idolatry. We've looked at these verses before from Exodus 20. And we begin to read from the... Ten Commandments, when it says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You couldn't be clearer than that, could you? The very first commandment of the Ten Commandments is, there should be no other gods put in his place. And then it goes on to say, you shouldn't fashion a god, you shouldn't make a god, you shouldn't bow down, you shouldn't worship a god. But unfortunately, while Moses was up getting the Ten Commandments, what was happening down below with the people? They were actually making their first god. They were fashioning this golden calf. And I think probably the reason for that was they had a desire for a visible image to worship. They said, Moses is gone. We don't know where he is. He doesn't seem to be coming back. We need a god to lead us. They wanted some kind of a visual image, apparently. And so they started to create this golden calf. Well, obviously, it was prohibited by God. And... In Deuteronomy 8, we read, If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. So idolatry was absolutely forbidden, and the punishment for it was death. Now, when we think about idolatry, we probably think of it as being more or less a, an Old Testament subject, and certainly it is mentioned a lot in the Old Testament. But as we come to the New Testament, idolatry is also mentioned a lot there as well. The beginning of the New Testament in the Gospels, Jesus lived around where Jerusalem is there on the map. He lived in, in Galilee, actually, which is north of there, and Judea, which was south of there. And in that area, which was populated almost entirely by Jews, idolatry was not a big thing. And so Jesus never used the term idols or idolatry. He did, however, use another word. He used the word pagans. And when he used the word pagans, he was referring to non-Jews who worshipped 
foreign gods. But in the Sermon on the Mount, he makes this very clear distinction. He says, so do not worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Now you see the distinction that he's made there? The pagans have these gods that really can't do anything for them, but you have a heavenly Father who knows what you need and can supply your needs. And so we as Christ followers are to live under the care of our heavenly Father. We don't have these other gods that we run after, a god of, of fertility, a god of rain, a god of sun, and hope that they will somehow make your life work for you. That was true of the pagans, and Jesus said, that's not for you. You don't do what the pagans do. You know that you live under the care of your heavenly Father. Then in the latter parts of the New Testament, as we move into Acts and the epistles, Christianity begins to spread into the Gentile regions where, of course, idolatry was practiced. And you see on this map how the gospel went up into Asia Minor, into Greece and Macedonia, and eventually even on over to Europe. And all of these, almost all of these people would have been idol worshipers. There were some Jews that were scattered throughout the whole world, little pockets of Jews here and there. But by and large, most of the people who came into the early churches into those churches that Paul and others started were people who were coming out of idolatry. But Paul wants to make sure that they realize that idolatry is not, no longer to be part of their lives. They are to believe in Christ and they are to worship God alone and to destroy, in fact, anything that related to their old life, to their old worship of idols. 1 Corinthians 6, 8 says, But for us, referring to the Christians, there is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And so the New Testament standard for Christ followers today is the same as it was in Paul's day. There is one God, the Father, for whom all things were created and for whom we live. We live for God and not for any other kinds of idols. All right, now today, when we use the word idols today about our lives as, as Christians, we use this term as a metaphor. We've talked about this before. We've talked about a metaphor, idols being a metaphor for things that we would put in God's place in our lives. There's a, a quote by uh, Timothy Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, and uh, I know that Rhonda mentioned this book too, and I'm gonna use a couple of the quotes today. Excellent book, it's in the church library. I would encourage you to read it. But today we use this word idolatry for ourselves, and he says, if anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life and identity, then it is an idol. And last week in our, in our work, particularly in day number three, we looked at how we can identify things in our lives that could potentially be idols for us. But God, of course, always forbids idolatry, and he warns of the futility of worshiping anything else as a god. It's futile to worship other gods, and he warns the about the foolishness of this. Now, as we look at a verse in Deuteronomy, it tells us, 
when Moses is actually projecting way into the future, he's warning the, the people of Israel who haven't even gone into Canaan yet at this time, but he's warning them for way down the future when they in fact are taken into captivity much later on. He says, there you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. So what he's saying is these gods are useless. They do not bring satisfaction. They do not meet your deepest needs. And that's why, although they look like they have eyes, they can't see. Although they look like they have ears, they can't hear. Although they look like they have hands, they can't work. They can't do anything for you. They are actually worthless. It is futile to have these idols in your lives because they cannot do anything for you. Then there's an example in the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, Bible scholars believe, was written about Solomon and was written by King Solomon. Now he, scripture tells us, was the wisest and the richest person who's ever lived. He also was king of Israel at that time, and so he didn't have to answer to anybody. He was the top guy. They weren't in captivity at that time. But although he had all of these things going for him, he still wasn't satisfied. And the book of Ecclesiastes talks about some of the things that he tried to bring meaning and satisfaction into his life. And he talked about the fact that he had looked in the area of study and wisdom. Didn't work. Looked at pleasure and laughter. That sounds good. Didn't work. Looked at work and projects of all kinds. Looked at material possessions and treasures. But he says in the second chapter of Ecclesiastes, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. And so he says, all that he had was still not enough to bring satisfaction. And that's the problem with an idol, when we use it in this metaphorical sense. We always want more, don't we? We always want more. If we just had that little thing, then I'd be totally satisfied. You might get that thing, and you might be satisfied for five or ten minutes, but then you're going to see something else out there. Oh, if I just had that then that would certainly do it. So all that Solomon had was still not enough to bring satisfaction. And these were good things, right? The work, the projects, there's nothing wrong with any of these things, but they just didn't satisfy. And Timothy Keller talks about that. He says, we think that idols are bad things. Now the fact that they are taking our worship is a bad thing, but the item itself may not be a bad thing. It's almost never that. In fact, the greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. So anything can really serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. Now, we talked about this a little bit in our groups last week. In fact, I think everybody in, in the group that I'm in confessed that probably our families. You know, we had to really be careful about that one. That could really become an idol for us, and I know... Rhonda mentioned that when she talked about it a few weeks ago, too. There are many things in our lives that can take that top spot or try to take that top spot if we're not careful. And family is certainly one of them. Another one is other kinds of relationships that are very meaning to us. 
we can put those in a higher place than they deserve. We can, we can worship almost health and fitness. Appearance. For some of us, appearance is a huge thing, and as you get older, it gets harder and harder to deal with some of these things. But they really can get out of whack. We can have them in the wrong place. Material possessions, things that we have, our homes, possessions, cars, money, and not just money, but even the things that it can buy, whether it be possessions or whether it be a sense of security. Now, when you get to, to be my age, I'm not wanting to buy a lot more things. I'm wanting, in fact, to get rid of a lot of things. But the security that money brings, you know, ooh, do we have the IRAs? Do we have the, the bank accounts? Do we have the portfolios? Do we have the things that we're going to need to take care of us for the rest of our lives? This can be a, a, a big thing that we have to be careful about. Achievement. For some people, it's all about achievement or it's all about approval. And our work, our success. All of these things really are good. There's nothing wrong in, innately about any of these things. And they all, in fact, can be blessings to us. But the problem is, we have to be careful that we don't put a crown on them. We don't sit them on the throne. In fact, because these things are really good, crossing over the line into worshiping them can be very subtle. We have to really be careful that we don't do this. There's an interesting verse in Colossians 3. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul is writing to this church, which is made up ma excuse me, mainly of Gentile believers, and he says, put to, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. All right, now let's stop there for a minute. A couple of metaphors here that are really strong. Put to death. What does that mean? Annihilate. Get rid of. Have nothing to do with, right? Thank you so much, Jane. Have nothing to do with it. All right, thank you. I was very dry. Thank you so much. So he says... Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Your earthly nature is your sin nature, right? And then he starts to mention some of these things we need to put to death. He mentions sexual immorality. He mentions impurity. He mentions lust. He mentions evil desires. And then he mentions greed. And you think, greed? No, I mean... That doesn't seem to fit with the others, does it? I can see the sexual immorality, the impurity, the lust, the evil things. Sure, you need to get rid of those, but greed? Greed doesn't seem all that bad. But then he gives us the clue when he says, which is idolatry. Did you ever think about greed as being idolatry? Greed is really idolatry. Greed, of course, is an excessive desire for more and more of virtually anything. And desiring anything more than God is what? It's idolatry, right? When we put anything else above God, that is idolatry. Now, everything really starts in our thoughts, in our thinking, our wishes, our dreams, our plans. But these things can easily turn to greed if we don't discipline them. And they'll never meet our deepest needs. They only create a thirst for more. And a thirst for more and more and more is... So he says you need to be very careful. You need to get rid of this. This cannot be part of your life. Wanting more and more and more of anything that will actually usurp God's place, that's a real danger. You need to get rid of that. You need to put to death anything that would try to take God's place in your life. 
All right, let's think about how we can apply this. What about worshiping other gods? How have you seen or been disappointed by an idol, quote unquote, that you didn't, that didn't really bring you the happiness or the meaning that you were expected? We've all been there. And this is the thing that we have to remember. It doesn't work. It really doesn't work. We were so sure that it was going to bring us happiness or meaning or joy or blessing or whatever. But it really didn't. And we need to remember that. Remember Ecclesiastes and Solomon said, ha, ah, I tried it all, folks. And it really doesn't work. Then how is greed, which is an excessive desire for something, actually a form or evidence of idolatry? And what does it mean to put that to death? How do we guard against it? How do we put to death these things that would take over our desires? Again, Timothy Keller says, idols cannot be simply removed. They must be replaced and replaced by God himself. I was thinking uh, about this. We've all had an experience, I'm sure, with maybe a flower bed around our house that was very lovely. But if we just didn't care for it and the weeds started to come in, first thing you knew, the weeds just kind of took over, didn't they? You think, oh, I need to get rid of those weeds. That looks terrible. And so you went out and you got rid of the weeds. You pulled them out, tried to dig out the roots as best you could. But if you didn't put anything else in there, it was just that dirt, you wouldn't say, oh, that's beautiful. Let's just leave it just like that. You wouldn't do that, but let's say for whatever reason you weren't able to replant it. What would happen to that empty plot of grass or ground? The weeds would come back, wouldn't they? The weeds always seem to survive. The other things don't, but the weeds always seem to, to survive. And so what Timothy Keller is saying, if you don't replace, if you take out, if you recognize that something is an idol in your life and you take it out, good, you need to remove it, but you have to replace it. Yet we have to plant the flowers back in for that to become fruitful and productive again. And in the same way, we need to replenish. When we pull out something that is becoming a danger for us, that could be an idol, we have to replace it with the right things. And what we have to replace it with is a life that's fully devoted to God. But what's that going to look like? What is a life that's fully devoted to God going to look like? There are many, many, many verses in Scripture that talk about how God's followers are to follow him and what it means and what it looks like to follow him. One that I particularly like is from Deuteronomy 10. And we're going to use this as, as kind of a template for us. And we're going to look at four qualities of a fully devoted life to God. Let's read together, first of all, Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 13. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? This is what God is saying. God himself is telling us what he asks of us. To fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. Now let's pull this apart. Four things that God says we need to do if we are going to live fully devoted to him. If he is going to be the God, the only God in my life, this is what the evidence in my life should be. First of all, we're going to fear the Lord your God. All right, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Does that mean you're afraid of him? You just have this terror of what he might do to you if you step off the path just a little bit, he's going to get you. No, that, of course, is not it at all. Fear of the Lord has the idea of awe, 
has the idea of reverence for God. Wholehearted commitment to God and his authority in our lives. Deuteronomy 31. Assemble the people, men, women, and children, and the foreigners residing in your towns, so that they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. So we are to follow him in full obedience, learn to fear him, learn to follow carefully all the things that he has told us to do. We walk in awe, in reverence, that he is the one who can set the course for our life, and he is the one that we need to always follow. Then in Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, it's, it's wise to walk this way. And all who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. So God alone deserves to sit on the throne of the universe, and he alone deserves to sit on the throne of my heart. And we walk before him in awe, in reverence, totally committed to him and his plan for us. So fear of the Lord is the first evidence or quality of a fully devoted love to God. The second is to walk in obedience. So the second is to obey the Lord. Deuteronomy 8 tells us, Be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in obedience to all the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. So it's very clear, Moses is telling them, your obedience to God and his ways is going to de determine your success, your productivity. Because God has designed the system, and he knows what works, and he tells you to do the things that work. And so when you obey him, when you follow him, you will be successful. Then I love <clears throat> the end. Okay, the end. Oh, sorry, I went too far on that one. I love the end of Deuteronomy 10:13, which says, Observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. And that is so important for us to see. And as moms, we know this, don't we? When you give your kids boundaries and you say, Don't do this or do this because this is good for you, what is your motivation? For their good, right? You want them to do well. And so you set boundaries for their good. And that's exactly the picture that we have of God. All the things, all the boundaries that he sets for us are for our good. So when we obey the Lord, we're helping ourselves. He is telling us the things that are for our good. And when we obey him, it will be for our good. So the second quality of a fully devoted life to God is obeying God. Then the third quality... The third quality is to love the Lord, your God. This is a fairly familiar passage to us, I would guess. But in Mark 12, some teachers of the law came and they heard Jesus talking with others. And they noticed that he had given them a good answer. And so he asked of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. 
So Jesus is actually giving us four areas that represent the totality of our human makeup and nature. He says, first of all, that we need to love God wholeheartedly. And there are four different aspects to our physical and human nature. And he says, in every one of these, God needs to be supreme. You need to love God supremely in all of these areas. The first one is heart. And Rhonda again talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Our heart is a metaphor for our emotions, for our feelings, right? Now we know our heart is extremely important on a physical plane too. In fact, if our heart was not beep, was not moving the blood throughout our body and doing the things that it has to do to keep us alive, we wouldn't be here. None of us would be here. But in a, in a metaphorical sense, our heart refers to our emotions. And so it's the seat of our desires, our feelings, our affections, our passions. And so with our emotional nature, we are to love God supremely. And we think of it that way. We think of our heart. We have, for Valentine's, we have all these cute little hearts and things on cards and different things that we might use for Valentine's Day because we understand that this is the emotion behind love. We love our family. We love our friends. We love other people because of that emotional draw, that emotional feeling. And that's part of our love for God. That's not all of it, but that certainly is part of our love for God as well. We should have those feelings of affection and passion for him and for a response to his love to us. All right, the second area is the soul. And the soul is really the inner person. Now, when we look at each other, we just see the exterior. And we just see what that person wants to show us, right? But inside is that inner person, the seat of the senses, the seat of the will. And that's the volitional nature. And so we need to love God with our, with our choices. We choose to follow him. We choose to be obedient to him. We choose to love him and go his way. The third is the mind. Our mind refers to our understanding, our intellect, our thoughts. It's our rational nature or reason. And so in a very real sense, we need to understand God's love and plan for us and how following him is the best way for our lives. And so we love him out of our minds. And then ultimately, the fourth one, according to our strength, our physical power, our physical might, our physical abilities or facilities, in other words, our physical nature. We love him with all that we are. And this would be the area out of which we serve him and we minister for him. So in all four of these areas, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, we are to put God supreme. He is to be loved out of all of these areas of our life. Sounds like a lot. But if I'm doing that, I don't need to worry a whole lot about idols coming in and taking his place, do I? If I'm focused on loving him out of every, every part of my personality, out every part of who I am, then it'll be a lot harder for the idols to get in there. All right, then there's one more. There's the fourth area, which is serving God wholeheartedly. At the end of that conversation that Jesus was having with the young man that asked what the greatest commandment was, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we serve God when we love others. I don't know that we always think about that. We think about serving God as teaching Sunday school or being a team member in Moms Together or doing something in your neighborhood, doing something in your school. We think of serving in those, in those terms. And it certainly is, that is correct. 
But Jesus said the second greatest commandment was love others, love your neighbors as you love yourself. And scripture tells us that we love ourselves well. You might think, oh, I don't love myself. Well, yes, you do. You feed yourself, you clothe yourself, you try to do all the things that are going to make yourself more meaningful to you. And so we do care about ourselves. And so when it says love your neighbor as yourself, that means as well as you treat yourself, as much as you desire good things for yourself, you are to do that for others. And that really is a way of serving the Lord. Another wonderful verse in Colossians 3, two, ex two verses actually. The Apostle Paul is writing, he says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anything you do to serve others, to minister to others, if you have that right attitude of, of serving and reaching out, you're serving the Lord. So when you're washing the dishes, when you're cleaning the floor, when you're cleaning the bathroom, when you're doing something that you just don't enjoy at all, we need to think, you know, Lord, I'm really doing this for you. I'm doing it for my family. I'm doing it for others that have needs, but I'm really doing it for you. Ultimately, below it all, under it all, I'm doing this for you. That is what pleases God. Then in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, I don't have that reference. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Isn't this a beautiful verse? It tells us that anything that we do for the Lord will not be in vain. And the New Living says, nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Anything that we do, serving others, ministering, doing what needs to be done, everything that we do, is not useless, and it really is serving the Lord. So when we serve others, that's the same as serving the Lord, and he is the one who will reward us. Okay, the idols that we worship today are not made of wood and stone. We don't manufacture or create little idols that we put in our homes and bow down to. They're, this is a metaphor, obviously. But our idols are just as useless to bring us true satisfaction and to meet our deepest needs. And so I think our author has done a really good job in this lesson. And most of it you probably looked at last week, but hopefully you'll have time to look at it maybe a little bit more today in your groups because days four and five are not that long. But in day three, she really walked us through some very important things. And I would encourage you to do this on your own to take your study guide and review those pages 116 to 123 about the idols and the idol trinkets and see what she has, how she has helped you to identify things in your lives that might be an idol, an idol trinket as she calls them. And then use this idol busting prayer. This is a very good tool. And if you really feel convicted in your heart that there's some, some area that you really need to be turning over to the Lord, use this, work through this, pray through this to ask the Lord to help you to see what's awry and what you need to do differently. And then as Timothy Keller said, we need to commit ourselves to remove and replace anything that's 
in the wrong place, anything that's displeasing to the God. It isn't just enough to remove these things. We need to replace them. We need to plant new things. And the way we plant new things is to focus on replacing any idol that we have by growing more fully devoted to God, learning how to fear him, learning how to obey him, loving, knowing how to love him, and learning how to serve him. And maintain the focus that anything that we do to serve the Lord is really something that, that, that means that he, you're serving him. You're not just serving others, but you're really serving him, and he will reward you for it. So the final question that I have to ask myself is, who is on the throne? And I think Jennifer did a very good in the lecture last week. She talked about the fact that many times we, we make ourselves the idol. We become the idol. We're trying to sit on the throne. And all these idol trinkets, our desire for family, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if it's out of balance, the need for approval, the need for some of these things that we think are just so important to us, those indicate to us that I'm sitting on the throne. God's not really sitting. He's there, but I've squeezed in beside him, and I'm trying to take over more and more of the position. Who's on the throne? Is God on the throne, or am I on the throne? This is a, a very serious question for us to ask. And since he talked about it a thousand times in Scripture, in every one of those times, it's a negative inference. This is not something to do. This is not something to pursue. This is something you need to fight. This is something to you get rid of. We know clearly what his desire, what his plan for us is. Who's on the throne? God, you are on the throne. Father, thank you for the fact that you do love us so very much. And worshiping you and putting you on the throne is not a negative thing at all. It's the very best thing we could possibly do because of your love for us, because of your desire to make us successful and meaningful children who walk in your paths and who live for you. Thank you, Father, that you do show us very clearly how you want us to follow you, that you want us to hold you in awe and reverence for who you are and be totally committed to all that you are for us. And then how you want us to obey the path that you have set, because that is the path that you have designed, the path that will bring us meaning and peace and joy and all the things that we desire. Then the love. We need to love you wholeheartedly with every part of ourselves and then to serve you, to, to reach that love out, the love that we receive, the grace that we receive. We turn it back and we share it with others. We serve others. So thank you for the wonderful example of your words and how you warn us about putting other things in your place because, number one, they don't work. They do not satisfy. But the importance of putting you where you belong so that you can be that, that source of meaning and purpose and joy that we all desire. Thank you for these women, for the fact that they have stuck with this study, which has been a difficult one. And I would pray for each one of us individually that you will help us to discern what you want us to learn from these truths from the book of Hosea, that we put you firmly on the throne, that we do not worship anything else or put anything else in your place. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, ladies.